David, last week, Donald Trump defended his practice of randomly capitalizing certain words in his tweets, insisting that he does it, quote, only for emphasis, not because he thinks those words should actually be capitalized. What I want to know from you is, which words do you think we should randomly capitalize as a matter of our <laughs> daily lives? Well, I, oof, I, I did a little bit of work on this one. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I sent a Slack DM to the Ringer copy chief, Craig Gaines, to see if there was anything that he, any, if he had any opinions on the subject. Um, and he said that his answer is that no extra word should be capitalized. <clears throat> he thinks we're in a perfect state uh, right now, and any changes uh, make his head explode. That's not yeah. a direct quote from him. That's my that's my point of view. Um, yeah. I was going to say, I, he's, I mean, the, he's the one who always you know takes it down a notch when I try to capitalize words like truth or literature. <laughs> um, those are good. Those are good uh, suggestions. Um, you know, I kind of like the the early English style of just like capitalizing the subject of a sentence. You know, I think that that helps <laughs> that that helps sort of direct the thought process. Um, but I don't. I, I I can't. There's there's not a lot of times where I desperately want to capitalize something that I don't get to. Uh, you know, I, f- I feel like I feel like I can force most of them through. What about you? Well, we need we, we definitely need more ringer stories where the narrator or the hero is capitalized. I think that'd give it a little bit of an old world charm. But yeah, I guess the one that always gets me now is the word internet, which I don't think we're supposed to capitalize anymore. But right. I'm old enough to remember, as they say, when we started out in journalism, when internet was a capital uh, was capitalized. <laughs> now it just seems very odd and old fashioned, doesn't it? Speaking of uh, be, speaking of being a, a writer and uh, and and all, odd and old fashioned, um, what about this reporter? Do you ever refer to yourself in print? <laughs> I never and- have, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to start today. We are middling with a capital M. This is the press box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The press box is the media podcast. We are not allowed to claim that Scott Pruitt was railroaded by the media. We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. Your Ringer syllabus this week. Check out David Hill's piece on cockfighting and the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency. Just trust me on that one. Also, Alan Siegel's oral history of the movie Step Brothers and all our coverage from Summer League in Las Vegas, starting with the BS podcast and trickling on down from there. But David, I've got three topics for you today. First, the media and its role in the ouster of said disgraced EPA chief Scott Pruitt. Second, while the World Cup semis play silently on TVs next to us, we'll talk about the death and possible rebirth of the American soccer troll. And finally, the Twitter sports argument we're having right now for some reason, is the NBA really better than the NFL or is the NFL better than the NBA? Plus, of course, our overworked Twitter joke of the week. But first, David, when Scott Pruitt resigned last Thursday, he, I know this is going to come as a shock to you as a as a uh, someone who studies the Trump administration, he blamed the media. He blamed, <laughs> quote, the unrelenting attacks on me personally, my family, he said they're unprecedented and have taken a sizable toll on all, all of us. But the quote that really stood out to me was Steve Bannon talking to the Washington Post. He said, Pruitt was strategic in his deconstruction of the administrative state at the EPA. He was relatively unique in combining a deep understanding of the issues with the legal jobs to take action. The opposition party and media got a scalp and it was a big one. So, what? How should we think about the media's role in the ouster of Scott Pruitt? Wow. Um, I mean, I, I I think it's you know, kudos to all of the reporters and and uh, other journalists who stayed on the the Scott Pruitt trail for so long. Um, 
kind of teasing out all of the seemingly never ending list of of uh, uh, problems emanating from from his domain. Uh, it, it does so sort of seem like I mean, it, it wasn't like there was one big gotcha that got him. And I have to think that that, you know, even the most ardent uh, Scott Scott Pruitt investigator sort of just, you know, threw up their hands inside when he finally resigned or because it, it didn't seem like. I mean, I guess it was a culmination of all of these little stories. That's the conventional wisdom now. But it, but it almost, I mean, it, 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 it was, it didn't feel like a great success uh, from a kind of sting journalism point of view for whatever reason. Probably because he just held on for so long. I think that's what it was. Because you should say it wasn't one big gotcha. It was like fifty big gotchas. Right? They would mm-hmm. have any other cabinet secretary. This was a list, partial list from Vanity Fair. Uh, lived in a lobbyist townhouse for fifty bucks a night. Installed an illegal $43,000 phone booth in his office. By the way, credit for bringing back the phone booth. Vanished part of American <laughs> life. Spent roughly $3,000 on fancy pens and journals and $1,500 on tactical pants. There's some uh, quotes around tactical <laughs> pants. Let a foreign agent, longtime pal, plan his $100,000 trip to Morocco, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and it goes on from there. But I think you're right. It's the fact that he hung on for so long. We've talked about this with with a lot about the Trump administration and the strange political time we find ourselves in. When the when the old power of the press to shame and people and to cause resignations doesn't work, it weirdly feels like the press isn't working, right? Mm-hmm. But in this case, it obviously is. And to as you say, the Scott Pruitt true believers who say, "Well, the press railroaded this. The press got rid of this guy. They got a scalp." Well, yeah, they did. That's a good thing, right? It's, yeah. it's a good thing when when corrupt officials are you know exposed and 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 they leave and and go away. Yeah, I mean, the, the level of corruption was just so mind boggling that I think at some point a lot of the investigations stopped uh, having the impact that they should have, um, and some of them are just so silly. I mean, mind boggling in many different in several different ways, but just like. I mean, the phone booth is almost as comical as it is devious. Um, certainly the tactical pants and the, you know, I, you know, I, I know that there's good, um, you know, important reasons why just random government cars shouldn't be using their, their you know, their uh, sirens to buzz through traffic. But that but it all just seems like such a odd comedy of errors. Um, but it, but I but yeah, I mean, it's. I, uh, it's amazing that he hung on this long going back to your initial point and and i think that you know it's it's hard to imagine why exactly at this moment uh it was decided that it was time for him to leave i mean there's you know word came out i mean there was there was some intimation that trump had tired of the endless stream of stories coming out of the epa um it certainly you know couldn't have hurt that the deputy andrew wheeler was finally confirmed and and just in place to to take over where pruitt left off um but I, I just, I, it just, it sort of just, it beggars belief, you know? I mean, p- part of me wonders if, if there's some point where Trump or someone in the White House realized that Pruitt had just become symbolic of the entire administration in some way. The swamp of the, of the swamp that has finally, that has come to the administration. I don't want to say finally, there was one note in the New York times to that point of why now, which is that you remember the CNN report we learned about last week where Pruitt had apparently gone to Trump and said, here's the plan. If you Mm -hmm. fire Jeff Sessions, we can use this little known rule to make me temporarily the attorney general. 
Right. And then I will come in and I will fire Robert Mueller and either and or <laughs> muck up the Russia investigation. Yeah. But here's the kicker. I don't want to be attorney general for very long because I want to go back to Oklahoma and run for office. So you do that part. And then I promise I'll be gone in like a couple of months and I'll, <laughs> I'll go back to barely Trump. And this is where we get into the meta, meta, meta media angle of this. Trump heard those proposals, did not, you know, actually object necessarily to those proposals. But the fact that those proposals leaked to the media, yeah. uh, according to the New York Times, made him angry. And that yeah. was the moment he decided to get rid of Pruitt. Well, and if it's true, I mean, who knows if it is, but if that whole thing is true, then, then yeah, the jig is up, right? I mean, you can't, you, that, that sort of, that, that becomes the reason, I mean, that, that plan itself becomes the reason for, you know, letting, letting him go. That's the thing about Pruitt is there wasn't just the kind of basic political scandals. One, as you said, some of the scandals were incredibly silly and I, I'm really upset at myself that I forgot to add that he enlisted an aide to reach out to the chief executive of Chick-fil-A with mm-hmm. the intent, as the New York Times puts it, of helping Mr. Pruitt's wife open a franchise of the restaurant. You know, truly, we have not had a good Chick-fil-A scandal in politics, and it's been too long, really, in American politics. But <laughs> that there is this sort of weird, there's a sort of weird color to his scandals, which have kept uh, the press in business over these many months. Like Pruitt went to the Fourth of July party at the White House on Wednesday before mm-hmm. his ouster. Um, <laughs> his ouster uh, came, you know, he of course resigned in official lingo, but actually it turns out John Kelly called him and said, time to resign. <laughs> that was yeah. the moment. So there's also this kind of just behind the scenes haplessness and color, I think, that, that have given this another dimension. There was a part of the scandal that was interesting, which was upon his resignation, a couple of voices from the right uh, came out in his defense. One was Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal opinion page who said, tweeted this quote, lesson to other Trump officials from Pruitt resignation, give the left slash media slash organized greens, meaning environmentalists in a molehill mm-hmm. and they will turn it into K2. Most of the accusations were overwrought, but the barrage was overwhelming to which Stephen Hayes, who's the editor of the Weekly Standard responded, the other lesson, be less corrupt. It's true. I mean, I made the point earlier, some of the, so much of the corruption was, it had like a comical aspect to it, but there was always, I mean, it seemed like for everything that you, that one might be willing to hand wave away, you know, the stuff about trying to help your wife find a job, you know, just in abstract, that's that, that, that whether or not that goes against government, you know, government bylaws, uh, that's a, that's a thing that people have encountered in their life, you know, making your, assistants pick up your dry cleaning or your or your you know moisturizer that's that that feels less corrupt and more like just being a bad boss you know but then there (laughs) but then like all of those all of those seem to just go hand in hand with a more uh you know a more significant form of corruption whether or not he was like actually flexing his muscles as epa chief to get his wife a job or you know firing the people that questioned his scheduling i mean that the the you know he kept the double books for his schedule so that he could um, you know, not not so we could keep secret who we met with, and then fired the person who questioned it. I mean that that kind of stuff is just it's really it's really crazy. And I think over more than anything else, as much good as he did for the cause, uh, as it were, um, and that certainly was his was his what you know his supporters and 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 defenders kept saying. You know, he was doing good work for um, you know what the 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 conservative anti environmentalist movement. Um, in a lot of ways, he did more work to some, to subvert it because it just becomes so transparent now. Um, 
that it's an ideology that's sort of based in corruption, right? I mean, if you have to, if, if you have to keep your, your schedule secret as EPA chief because the people that you meet with are going to be so objectionable, if you have to have your phone calls in a private soundproof booth, you know, if you, if you have, it's, it's just, I mean, that it, it's sort of, I can't imagine what the ideological defense of this is. Yeah. And, and let us not forget when we were talking about Kevin Williamson a few weeks ago on the pod, right? One of the great LOL Kevin Williamson pieces in National Review was this piece about Scott Pruitt, right? But his mm-hmm. whole thing was at that point, his, and I quoted a few lines, he's serious about this rule of law stuff. It's, he's the last thing the left, and by the way, the left is capitalized. Note to all <laughs> uh, ostentatious capitalization fans. He's the last thing the left expects to see in a Trump appointee principle. Right. So the whole the whole thing was that by being so sort of ostentatiously pro industry, it was that he was it's actually he's really principled. Right. He's not you know, he's not one of these guys who's coming into this cover of, oh, I just have different ideas. He's just he's all in on this and he will happily argue with you uh, about why he's all in on this. He's not hiding anything, as it turns out, the rule of law stuff, quote unquote, got in the way. And by the way, that leads us to one last point, which I thought was interesting. David Roberts of Vox had this long tweet thread over the weekend. And one thing he said that was interesting, he says, then he, he, he seized on Pruitt's scandals. And, and what you talk about, Andrew Wheeler, the deputy now coming in, who we all think is going to push a really similar policy, right? He says, mm-hmm. consequently, the next EPA administrator is going to push the same terrible destructive policies without the process-based scandals. And quote, objective journalists will have absolutely nothing to say about it. They're not allowed to be anti-poison, right? Meaning right. one of the reasons Scott Pruitt got so served up to the Washington press is he was he was scandal-ridden in a very obvious and bipartisan way, right? But if yeah. you just had but those positions themselves were not scandalous in the world of nonpartisan journalism. So what happens with the next guy? Can journalists just can, you know, and I'm not talking about people who write for Mother Jones or something, but can people at the New York Times be like, oh, this is just really bad? Or do they have to be like, well, this guy just has different ideas about the environment? Yeah, and and that's the way in which he's like I, I mentioned before, and, and and one of the ways that Pruitt is is sort of a metaphor for the whole Trump administration. I mean, there's there's no end to the there's endless conspiracy theories, you know, about Trump being able to just go out and do something really offensive when he's trying to distract from something uh, that's you know more significant uh, in the, that the that his administration is doing more significant but but less juicy. Um, there were, people were talking about that through the whole campaign that some of his uh, wilder moments, you know, were deliberate. And who knows if you believe it, but that's certainly uh, there. I mean, there is a great function to that to distract from, you know, the policy things that really matter. Um, before we get off this point, I do want to say, since this is a media podcast, um, I, I do want to point out that the 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 depth of the corruption of the Scott Pruitt regime, you know, will we'll miss you very much. But the but the people <laughs> compiling these, com- the people compiling the lists of these stories. I don't think, you know, in, in journalistic, in, in, in online articles and, and especially print articles won't miss him at all because the list had gotten so long and unwieldy. Uh, I emailed you last week that, that it was, it had gotten to the point where they had actually driven the New York Times to listicles. There was a, a New York Times headline that <laughs> of 13 reasons Scott Pruitt lost his job as EPA chief. And you get, and just is, I mean, I'm sure listeners will appreciate the, the, the feeling that one gets when reading an, an article online where you get to a giant ad. The ringer is not exempt from these things. You get to a giant ad and, and mentally you're not sure if the piece is over yet or not. And you kind of, and you have to scroll and find out if you're in the comment section or if the piece is going to keep going. There, I, I was reading a, 
a, a piece, uh, a good piece today on the Atlantic, um, by David Graham that was, that, that just went, I mean, it just basically just listing all of the, all of the issues that he's had. And it got to the point where, like, there were three different ads where I, where I, I assumed the piece might be over and it just kept going. Um, <laughs> this is, this is certainly, uh, I mean, kudos to the journalists that help uncover all of these scandals and, uh, and, you know, congratulations to not have to keep compiling this stuff over and over again. Indeed, Scott Pruitt's greatest crime, driving the New York Times to listicles. All right, David, it's time now for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Let us stick with the disgraced Scott Pruitt. A late-in-the-game Pruitt revelation, which we did not name, David, was that, quote, he, this is one summary of a Washington Post story, he repeatedly asked his 25-year-old staffers to put hotel reservations on their personal credit cards rather than his, <laughs> and then refused to pay them back. Do you remember Anna Delvey, the woman who was parading around New York hotels asking people to cover her bills yes, before landing yes. in jail? It was a very overworked Twitter joke uh, to tweet, Anna Delvey called and she wants her grift back. Thanks to Matthew <laughs> Zeitlin for that. Uh, Boogie Cousins signing with the Warriors brought a bumper crop of overworked Twitter jokes. Uh, one was just where you yeah, just have a random person signing with the Warriors, right? So, <laughs> example here, breaking Joey Chestnut is expected to sign with the Golden State Warriors. That's via Brent Axe. The other big one was Cousins' contract, as we know in NBA circles, was a one-year $5.3 million deal. Uh, it was an overworked Twitter joke to tweet, quote, the new contract brings Cousins only one million shy of renting a two-bedroom apartment in San Francisco. That's via Matt Lawrence. <laughs> This week's winners were provided by the Russia-Croatia match in the World Cup, which, David, I know you've been watching nonstop. <laughs> when the Russians were winning games, it was an overworked Twitter joke to say something like, quote, it's going to be weird when we're, Russia wins the World Cup, but at least a sports team will finally get an invite to the White House. <laughs> then the Russians lost to Croatia on Saturday, and someone tweeted, excited to see if Croatia can do what Hillary Clinton couldn't. <laughs> which is to beat the Russians, that is, to which every conservative pundit replied, visit Wisconsin? That's via Garrett Broad, who found that via Matt Fuller. And finally, in the aforementioned Russia-Croatia game, which Croatia won on penalty kicks to advance to the semifinals, there was yet more Trump-Russia humor. Brian Boitler of Crooked Media tweets, hope the Croatian soccer players don't have any embarrassing emails. New York Times writer Ken Vogel tweets, just couldn't hack those penalty kicks, huh, Russia? But my favorite of the Russia, Trump, Croatia, World Cup genre comes from John Lovett, of Pod Save America, a friend of the Ringer Podcast mm -hmm. Network. He tweets, a Croatian player throws up his arms in victory. A Russian player approaches slowly. The Russian player extends his hand as if offering a gift. Is that a videotape? A videotape of what? The Croatian player picks it up and reads the label. His eyes widen. If you, if you reference the alleged P-tape after Russia lost the, it lost to Croatia in the World Cup, congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Thanks to Mike Brew for that one. Our second topic, David, the death and now possible rebirth of the American soccer troll. I saw a tweet today. This is hot off the Twitter press. Time to reset the X days since a U.S. newspaper printed a terrible opinion piece on the World Cup counter. And it was thanks to this one. It was a piece in the Wall Street Journal op-ed page called I'm Sick of World Cup Fever, in which the author, Gerald Eskenazi, went through the usual gripes. Soccer's low scoring. It's anti-American. There's flopping. 
He also made fun of Americans for saying things like one nil uh, to indicate scores. I wrote a piece this week about how the American soccer troll has all but vanished this time around. Were you struck by this phenomenon too, that we're not seeing in addition as a kind of counterbalance to all the soccer fandom on Twitter, this crazy soccer trollery and anti-fandom? Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I mean, that it was sort of, you know, it was a, it was a popular mode um, in World Cups past. And obviously there haven't been that many World Cups that have been significant enough to garner the attention of, you know, the Ann Coulters of the world. Um, but yeah, but definitely. I mean, I think that it's a little bit hard to see, you know, so clearly from where I sit, because certainly the 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 acceptance, the general acceptance in the sports world of, of World Cup soccer has, you know, cleared whatever last hurdles it needed to clear. I mean, there is there's no question that, you know, ESPN is going to cover it as much or more as any other sport. Uh, well, I mean, rights deals uh, dependent, I guess. But and, um, you know, and, and every every website, every magazine, every sports outlet is, you know, is is treating this like a giant, the giant thing that it is. Um but so so I'm not sure if the if I, at first I wasn't sure I guess if the if the uh, anti voices had stopped or if they just weren't being listened to they just didn't have quite the same platform but your piece I thought did a really good job of sort of showing that that you know most most anti soccer voices just aren't really wasting their breath anymore yeah and I sort of think it's I mean I sort of the most obvious reason is that the U S men's national team didn't make the World Cup right. Mm-hmm. which is a sense and there's this sort of sense that you know you have this right that it's the soccer troll comes out to play uh when he hears the words the soccer is the sport of the future in the united states right or sure. in the middle of this huge soccer boom so when you don't have the men's team there everybody just kind of shuts up but i think there's mm-hmm. this, a, a bigger thing which is kind of when i was looking back at all the trollish articles of years past which is this idea that soccer the the kind of writing people used to do about soccer where they'd kind of, you know, talk kind of about the socialist, you know, roots of soccer and they would take some shots at, you know, countries, fun those quote unquote funny countries that that play the sport. That kind of sports writing, which which I described as comic nativism, just doesn't yeah. really exist anymore. Sure. Um, you know, I feel you used to open SI or or your certainly your local newspaper, and you just kind of find that on a fairly semi regular basis, but it just it's just gone now. And, you know, it's like, it's funny. We have we, sports writing has changed so much, I think, in the last couple of years, generally speaking. But that has been one of the biggest things that's changed is this idea that you just don't, you just can't be that guy in, or gal in print anymore, as a matter of course. Yeah. I mean, Snark certainly has, has its own, you know, separate corner on the internet now. There are places, there are websites that do that, you know, uh, deliberately and, and consistently. And, uh, I, but I think that for the most part, yeah, I mean, like local papers, uh, all the way up to, you know, major sports sites. Um, uh, I think that, you know, it, it is, a. I, I think that you, there's more money or there, you know, there, you get more eyeballs by, by positivity for the most part, unless you're, unless, like I said, you're one of the sites that, that operates almost exclusively on the other side. Um, I think yeah, you're I'm right. Not even, I'm not even sure it was a snark thing so much as like specifically what was being snarked about. Right. You know, cause I think sure. there's still a lot of snark out in the world, but it's just one of those things that, you know, what we were snarking about was 
just like basically, haha, look at those people from other countries, <laughs> which it's is true. So cool anymore. Well, I mean, and, and, and just, you know, demographically and, 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 you know, due to the state of the, the newspaper and journalism industry, I think there's just a lot less of those, you know, sport, uh, sports journalists that, you know, the, the old, the old columnists from, from our childhood that would, that would, you know, grouse about, whatever the three point line every Sunday or whatever, you know, I mean, that's, that's just not, that, that's just not quite the same. Uh, there's not as quite as many people doing that as there used to be, but you're right. I mean, it is a very, there, there is a, there's a, a piece of it that's very specific to soccer. And I think that, that you make the, the good point that without the U S men's national team there, it, it, it changes things because the, now the people that are watching, um, no one feels compelled to watch, I guess, because of the presence of, of, um, of the U S team, Although I think that in some ways that just sort of streamlined the whole uh, the whole presentation because it, it you know I, I I'm I'm assuming that the uh, that the uh, ratings have been pretty good but but at least from where I'm sitting it just sort of uh, everybody's been happy everybody's had just as much fun or, or nearly as much fun watching the World Cup without the impending inevitable heartbreak of the U.S. team you know the U.S. team losing. Um, and, and we didn't have to spend the first two weeks doing that. I'm sure that, you know, Fox would have, would have rather had the U S team there for ratings, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess, I, I guess if there's, I can understand, I can understand why someone would at one point troll be, I mean, you know, be upset about the, about having to be feeling forced to watch soccer, a sport that they don't care about just because, you know, the U S team is there, but it's not, you know, it's not a, it, it's just it's such a silly point. I think that we I think that the the, the takeaway from your uh, from your piece is that, you know, like, thank God all of that's over. Right. I mean, who like it's just an, an unnecessary level of trolling. Yeah. And also just really weird. I mean, just imagine if I assigned you today to say, David, please write a story uh, about how this sport is really dumb. You know, yeah. just like pick a sport. Right. This this like sport that's not hugely popular is just really stupid. Like you just yeah. so just write it about like how you find it boring uh about the people who the specific people who play it about its fans because that was a huge part of soccer trollery right was going after soccer fans american soccer fans mm-hmm. um that's just a really weird exercise <laughs> on a lot of levels and and just there's just almost no way that story is going to age well i also think and i noted this in the story there's there's a sense that a couple of the biggest soccer trolls have become giant soccer fans now uh-huh. Which is really funny to me, and it's sort of that we've talked about this in other um, in other circumstances. But there's a sense, right? Like, hey, you're a sports writer. There's a big soccer game on television, as there is as we record this podcast, by the way. Mm-hmm. And if you want all the clicks, you better pretend to be a soccer fan for a couple of hours, right? Yeah. If you want to tweet about it, if you want to write about it, if you want to get in on that action, I think that's like this giant tractor beam that pulls sure. people towards this kind of stuff and away from those takes even the even the you know uh, sports radio hosts who are not huge soccer fans are still engaging in soccer and it's this you see the same thing on twitter right i mean the people who are not the people who will still take a shot every you know once or twice a game about how football american football or or basketball is a is a better sport and and here's why soccer is not as good they're still engaging in real time with the game i think there's that necessity with the way that sports writers cover sports now that it just it really is a you know it's a 20 hour a day job and, and, and yeah, you have to engage. Yeah. And this kind of whole event culture on Twitter where there's so few things now that bring us together that, that all of America watches at the same time, that if you are a website, a news website of any kind, you just dogpile 
whatever is getting has a pulse, right? Absolutely. Whether that's yeah. a TV show, whether it's the Oscars or whatever, and like the World Cup reaches a certain level and the ratings on Fox have not been absolutely spectacular, but it obviously is something that not only not only uh, captures the attention of fans, but captures the attention of a lot of kinds of people that live on sports Twitter, right? And live on yes. your sports website. Uh, and live in Brooklyn <laughs> specifically, yeah. so, and monopolize and mon- monopolize the time of the news cycle when nothing else going is going on. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it 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 really has it has an outsized voice. Obviously, if the World Cup was going up against the, the NBA playoffs or something, it would be it wouldn't have quite the platform that it does. But but it's a uh, you know it, it's 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 certainly got a loud voice, and you know for for people who are on Twitter, it's 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 making a lot of noise. I was fascinated by this story in the Wall Street Journal today. Because the author, Gerald Eskenazi, who was a longtime sports writer at the New York Times and a very nice guy, wrote this, what is, you know, a very standard dismissive of soccer piece. But he had a line in there where he said, I wrote a book about soccer. So I went back and looked this up. It's from the early 80s, and it's called A Thinking Man's Guide to Pro Soccer. So he has actually traveled the opposite journey. He was not the <laughs> guy who hated soccer, who decided to love it. I actually have more respect for this journey. He was the guy who <laughs> wrote an entire book about soccer was was pledged enough to it to write a book called the thinking man's guide and now is writing the story about like what's the big deal about this whole world cup kind of thing i I find (laughs) that totally perplexing but i find it weirdly more honorable than the other thing of like ah well everybody likes it so i might as well too yeah that is a very strange journey usually the i mean the the earliest adopters (laughs) to the to soccer fandom are the loudest voices that i know at least in my personal life you know if you could if you planted your flag early enough then you then you uh uh, that's something to be proud of right now that's that's pretty incredible yeah it's like i i I was interested enough in soccer that i wrote a whole book about it and at the end of the day i found it wanting like okay I, i guess that's uh i guess that's a journey that some people are on um let's talk about our final topic which is also interesting another strange sports thing bubbling up on Twitter this week. I dated, I think, to Boogie Cousins signing with the Warriors, which was the moment when we all realized that everybody plays for the Golden State Warriors now, right? <laughs> yes. But I think there's, I think it has, it's one of those sports arguments that was just inevitable because all of the action was all NBA, right? The NBA is right. the league of the future. Speaking of sports of the future, the NBA is the woke league, right? It's the politically mm-hmm. astute league. It's the league of LeBron talking about police violence. And then <laughs> all it took was Boogie Cousins signing that you had a few people pop up on Twitter. Teddy Bruschi was one. I saw Seth Wickersham had a tweet about this that was like, oh, but wait a second. We all know, we all know how the NBA finals are going to end next year. So yeah. Is the NBA really better than the NFL or is it better than the NFL on these uh, particular things? And wouldn't if the NFL with these kinds of things were happening in the NFL, wouldn't that be a huge scandal? And I was like, here it is. I thought we were going to have to wait till the next labor disagreement for this to happen. But it actually yeah. came uh, came a little bit early. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Boogie Cousins signing there was a great Twitter moment. Right. I mean, it, it, first of all, I think I think it, it must be said that of all, you know, what sets this apart from, you know, Kevin Durant signing last year and, and, you know, LeBron James making his various moves. There have been surprises, but this was a sort of like elemental surprise. You know, I mean, it came just really out of nowhere. There was like a tweet with like, a, you know, I think there was some vague like, you know, it's about to there's about to something's about to happen tweet. And then this thing that no one could have predicted 
uh, you know, happened. And it does, you know, in some ways tilt the balance of the NBA. But I think a lot of people were reacting more out of shock than anything else. Um, and But a lot of that segued directly into... The NBA is broken. I'm not a fan anymore. How can you know? How can people keep watching this crap? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there there was a lot of that. I, I just think that the the you know percentage wise, the level of the Warriors' inevitability did not change dramatically because of this signing. Because of the signing of a you know malcontent coming off of an Achilles injury. You know, I mean, I don't. I'm not sure. And, and even if he were at his peak. They only have that many minutes to go around. I think that I guess it, it's just more symbolic of of uh you know some of the problems with the, with what the way that this the NBA salary cap and free agent movement is set up. Yeah, if it's even a problem, right? I mean, that's the that's the debate. Well, that, I, I don't. Think, I mean, I don't know that it's. A, I don't think it's. I mean, I think that. Yeah, I think I think you're right. That is the debate. I mean, we. Kevin O'Connor wrote a piece for the Ringer that that went back over the you know I mean it was a good piece that talked about how the 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 the, the failure to smooth the salary cap when they raised the percentage of, of profits from the from the you know on the player side led to some really crazy signings over the past couple couple summers but directly led to Kevin Durant signing with the being able to sign with the Warriors the Warriors being able to clear the space to sign him, um, but and, and that's true. Uh, and certainly, you know, I mean, Michelle Roberts, the the NBA Players Association president, does not, uh, you know, d- does not think that the lack of smoothing, you know, was problematic. But, you know, it just every time I would see those articles, it's like, here is the, you know, here is the one thing that the Players Association, the failure of the Players Association that led to the moment that we are right now. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, is anybody going to write about how... Is someone going to have the balls to write the piece that like letting Tom Chambers enter free agency for the first time, however many decades ago, is that was the the original <laughs> sin of the current problem with the NBA? I mean, no, we're all pro player movement. It's just just because like a powerful team signed a player that you kind of wanted your team to sign doesn't mean that the system's broken. Yeah, and I I, I think we're all pro player movement, but I think there's still just under the surface this enormous discomfort with players kind of calling their shots. And mm-hmm. deciding to play together, we talked about this when when we were talking about LeBron last week. But I just still think people are just still rewiring their brains from the old system where GMs essentially, whether it's free agency, but GMs and team owners were still the you know the drivers of movement in the league, right? You know, mm-hmm. agreeing to willing to play player negotiation to the this point in the NBA we're getting where players are more and more determining their own destiny, especially superstar players, right? And saying, "Oh, come play mm-hmm. with us," you know. Come play over here. LeBron James making, you know, deciding to go to LA and make that a thing. I just, I think people aren't comfortable with that yet. I really do. I'm comfortable with it, but I just, I think it's very hard for people because I think it's, you know, basically changes around a lot of sports history. Um, Here's a place where that's not happening. The NFL. Yeah. (laughs) Right. This is, it's not because one player really wouldn't make that much of a difference, but it's also just like, you know, we see with the NFL, like, you know, with, with franchise tags and things like that, that are, you know, basically inhibiting movement of the top superstars. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have the NBA where it's like the best basketball player in the world keeps changing teams because just because he wants to. And now yeah. he's on his fourth different tour with the franchise. Anyway, I, I don't know if I can prove it, but I just feel that's right under the surface. The people just haven't gotten comfortable with this new world yet. Well, I mean, I think that's true. And I think that there, I mean, sort of like a sidebar to that is that we have sports narratives that we prefer um 
we all, you know, I mean, obviously there's there's the very basic, you know, underdog stories and, and you know, tales of redemption and everything else. Um, but, you know, if you if you nail down what's really specific to what, what Boogie Cousins did, in some ways that should be like the least objectionable version of, 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 of what happened. I mean, he was a divisive player in a lot of ways, but like if he had signed a max deal with the Atlanta Hawks and just sort of you know, because of the amount of money he was making, he made made it impossible for them to really put anybody around him. And because of the, his style of play, he just they can never get out of the first or second round of the playoffs. Like that's not a preferable situation. I don't think any of these people, any anybody uh, complaining about him signing with Golden State, would have preferred that state of affairs particularly. And on and, court, and at the same on the court, you mean? But maybe from yeah, a salary the, perspective, they would have. Because sure, he was just getting as much as he could. Sure, but we but like you know, there are. I think that people would have with a different team and, and and a different player. I mean, it's specifically what happened would have been much less objectionable. You know, if if LeBron James had said, "I all my life have wanted to play for the Lakers, and because of that, I'm going to sign a minimum contract so that they have the ability to put a great team around me," people would have thought he was, you know, the second coming. You know, if so, if if uh, people are like people in in Oklahoma City think think Carmelo Anthony is like the worst person in the world for signing it for for opting in <laughs> the last year of his contract that's you know that that they had agreed to take on um but you know if he were if he had said I'm going to quit and come back for the minimum or come back for the, you know the exception um they might have thought that was a you know a, just an incredible commitment to team you know to the team concept uh and and a, and a and a desire to be a part of something bigger um but yeah, I mean, certainly there, this is a different thing with Boogie signing with the Warriors. It, you know, you can you, you your mind more quickly goes to you know narrative concepts like front running or like you know whatever like the the, the unbeatable the unbeatable just got more unbeatable. You know, I mean, these are I can understand why people aren't into it. Um, but there is this sort of uh, and and this kind of goes to the previous thing we were talking about that like it's easy to hate and and you know proceed with the sort of confirmation bias of angry chat rooms that that and believe that just because you don't like the feel of something that there is like a that there is a specific legal or structural or procedural issue as to why it's wrong i mean it's mm -hmm. okay just to not like something you know it's okay to be like yeah that signing just doesn't you know i'm not that makes me like the warriors less or something it doesn't mean that you got to burn everything down just because you're not you know because something kind of hit you the wrong way yeah i mean it's funny though but i think i think in a way, the upside of that is that people are connecting these issues to things like labor, right? And, sure. you know, just basic first principles, uh, the kind of stuff that sports writers should be thinking about. So you're right. It does make everything into this just giant catastrophe. But at the same time, they're probably thinking about this stuff a little harder than maybe they were at another, you know, time and time and place. I do think if I, if I have any, you know, moment where I want to join team counterintuitive in this. I just think the NBA deserves lots of criticism. You know, I just like when I said the labor thing, I just thought you have a certain way right now that most people think about, or a lot of NBA fans, I should say, think about Adam Silver, right? Mm -hmm. As soon as Adam Silver is the guy saying, I want the players to get less money, uh, which is every, which is the history of every single, <laughs> you know, contractual negotiation in the history of pro sports, right? Mm -hmm. He's going to look worse and it's going to highlight things about Adam Silver and about the NBA that look less enlightened and ought to be highlighted, right? That should happen. Criticism of the NBA should happen or skepticism about the NBA. And I do think there's a sense, you know, in sports writer to at large right now that everybody's so excited about the league because it is exciting 
and it is fun and it does and it does you know permit a certain level of social activism and things like that um it's different it has certainly a different feel than the nfl in a lot of ways but that but that this is you know it's it deserves criticism and it, no one should hold back on that you know even even if you get shouted down on twitter a couple of times that's okay right it should you should oh, yeah. that that should be part of the dialogue i i agree that that's true um but at the same time, I, 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 and, and there's, this isn't, I'm not trying to qualify what you just said. I think the league definitely deserves criticism and, and, and they should get it. And I think that the problem is that it's muted so many other times. I just feel like this is, I understand why people are up in arms uh, about this. I, I can't say that enough times, but this is, I feel like the wrong moment. You know, I mean, like Boogie did not get, was not getting offered the contract he thought he deserved. You know, he was, he went to the free, he went into the summer probably having dreams of $180 million or whatever, you know, I mean, there's, there's some giant long-term deal. And when that didn't start trickling in, I mean, that when that didn't come in immediately, um, he was left sort of saying, well, do I want to take a $10 million contract with a mediocre team and, and, and let them have the rights to the second year? Or do I want to just like walk into the best situation for me and make all that money that I thought I was going to get next summer? I mean, I, and, and he wouldn't even be going to the, sure. He, he's going to a stacked team, a team that now has five all-stars, but he wouldn't be going there if they hadn't, you know, run their team the right way and put this whole thing together. And, you know, three of their starters, these all-star starters are guys that they drafted. I, I just think that, uh, you know, the, you're right. The league des- deserves it. When the league deserves criticism, they should be criticized. Um, it's just sort of amazing to me that of all the players in the league, that Boogie Cousins is sort of this just like re- reverse re- workers' rights icon. You know, I don't know. It's it just <laughs> it's just sort of beautiful and weird. I mean, just because he's such a weird player, it 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 it, it fits. But it's it's a uh, yeah. It's a, it's a bizarre state of affairs for a lot of reasons. Also, by the way, lurking just below the surface in this is the football writer, the NFL writer versus the NBA writer, the NFL oh, yeah. writer whose life is the anthem and head injuries and Roger Goodell, right? Mm-hmm. And crazy awful NFL owners and the NBA writer's life who is, you know, living in the garden of Eden that is NBA Twitter where we love all NBA journalism, right? And we're yeah. interested in the players and they're cool and we want to learn from them and we like them and also I just I just that <laughs> I I am generalizing extremely broadly here, but I feel that one of those that one the person in the NFL world looks at the person in the NBA world and is like, I am just working in a totally different milieu than you are. <laughs> like, my, why do you? Why are you working over there and getting all these kind of different, you know, breaks and this in this sort of benefits of this different world that I'm not? You know, like NFL yeah. NFL writing from afar doesn't look fun. NBA writing from afar looks fun. You know, yes, and and I just think that I, somehow that's tied up in all this. I I I, I absolutely believe that. Yeah, no, I think it, it's it's definitely true. I mean, and it's and and you know, this is their opportunity to sort of glorify the system that the NFL has in place, even when you know the other times that you know if 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 NFL if the NFL salary structure ever comes up on this podcast again, uh, <laughs> I think it's safe <laughs> to assume, yeah. <laughs> I think it's safe to assume that it'll be that we'll be being critical of it, right? I mean, to be able to just you know automatically hang on to a player because the you know for an indefinite amount of time because the the owner of the front office decides they can't do without them, 
you know, that's a pretty that's a pretty amazing, amazing state of affairs of affairs just to when you say it out loud, you know, Um and and you know it's funny too. Someone I, I think was, for some reason I feel like it was Teddy Bruschi was on TV complaining about Demarcus Cousins about how like at yes. least with the NFL like anybody can every you know no one predicted that the that the uh, Eagles would win the Super Bowl and that's what's so great about the NFL. And someone I think quickly pointed out that he had picked the he had picked the Patriots to win the Super Bowl like every year for the past six years on ESPN or something. <laughs> so it's like there is there is inevitability in every sport just because it doesn't come true all the time doesn't really change that. And the, and you know. We were the season hasn't started yet, so it's sort of it's sort of you know it's ridiculous to call the Warriors inevitable now. What if we capitalized the free agent every time we talked about the NFL salary structure or the NBA? Salary I like structure? it. Yeah, I, I think that's perfect. Kind of bring in the magic of those Trump tweets. All right, that's the press box for this week. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Back next week for more hot takes on the media. I'll see you later, David. See you later, man. 